Welcome to Food Psych, a podcast about intuitive eating, health at every size, body liberation, and taking down diet culture. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm an anti-diet registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor, offering online courses and programs to help people all over the world make peace with food. Join me here every week as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships with food and their bodies. Uh-huh. I, I, I remember I was teething, little gums bleeding. Friday evening, it was all about eating. When I became a teen, it was all about beefing. Now I'm ready for the world. Try and sink my teeth in. Stacking Hey there, welcome to episode 152 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and today I'm talking with Lindley Ashline, the body positive photographer behind the revolutionary stock photo website, Representation Matters. We talk about the power of representation in people's journeys toward body acceptance, the process of breaking fashion rules for people in larger bodies, how the diet industry uses aspirational, quote unquote, marketing to lure us in and keep us hooked, and so much more. It's a really, really good one. I can't wait to share it with you in just a moment. But first, I'll answer this week's listener question. It's from a listener named Lizzie who writes, I'm an aspiring health coach with my own history of a pretty terrible relationship with food. Foods were definitely quote good and quote bad and my self-esteem was totally wrapped up in my food choices and weight. I dieted and binged and was pretty miserable. I now eat intuitively and do not try to get my diet quote unquote right, whatever that means. Sometimes I can still have old diet mentality thoughts, but I recognize this for what it is and turn the volume down and get on with my life. My question is, a big part of my initial stage of healing was learning about whole foods and making some simple swaps that were not hard, but for me feel so much better in my body. For example, I swapped artificial sweeteners for real sweeteners, skim milk for full fat, etc. Tossing out the low fat foods also helped me feel more satiated, so I was not as obsessed with food. I'm confused because I truly believe that you have to allow yourself to eat everything to heal emotionally, and at the same time, there may be certain knowledge, like ingredients, that could make you feel good on a physical level as well. I hate the way food and marketing tricks people, and so I suppose I feel like on an ethical level that I want to support people to move away from these being the majority of their diet. Not because of weight, but because of false marketing, chemicals, companies caring about cost and not people. And at the same time, I totally believe that these foods, of course, are part of a well-balanced diet. I get that we don't just eat for physical health. And so, of course, these foods can play an important role. Uh, And then she also mentions here that she's a fan of Michael Pollan. Is it okay to talk about food quality with some clients or support them to learn how to make delicious things with whole ingredients? And then also, of course, emphasize spiritual and emotional health where jellies and Toblerones are to be loved and enjoyed. If I sound confused, it's because I am. I want to do what's right by the people that I will work with and really respect your work. So thanks, Lizzie, for that great question. And before I answer, just my usual disclaimer that these answers are for informational and educational purposes only and aren't a substitute for individual medical or mental health advice. So first of all, I love what you said about um, how we don't just eat for physical health. And so, of course, all foods are available to us and we have permission, unconditional permission to eat. And there's no moral judgment on eating so-called processed foods. I'd say, though, proceed with caution when you're discussing food quality, because the concept of quote unquote whole foods is really deeply intertwined with a very 21st century version of diet culture that's supposedly about wellness. I've started calling it the wellness diet, and it's the way that diet culture hooks us in at this point in history when many people have gotten wise to the more overt versions of diet culture and, you know, millennials are considered to like whole foods and less processed things and stuff like that. The diet industry is on to that. The diet industry has played a part in that. And really this overarching concept of diet culture, which is not just about the diet industry per se, but also about how moralizing views about food and bodies are transmitted to the public and are sort of embedded in ideas about food and physical activity. 
And so those ideas, like moralizing ideas about certain bodies being better than others, about the quote unquote obesity epidemic are really tied up with this wellness diet that I'm talking about. And so I'd really be careful talking about these sorts of things, especially with people who are vulnerable, who are, you know, stuck in diet culture and trying to come out of it and coming to you for help with that. Um, And so that's not to say that we can't love and enjoy food and feel good with food when we're eating so-called whole foods. And like you found in your own experience, swapping out the diety stuff like artificial sweeteners, right, which are part of diet culture, which would not exist without diet culture, and swapping out skim milk, which is also a big part of diet culture for the original non-diety versions of these things like sugar and, you know, whole milk can actually lead to a lot more pleasure and satisfaction. So that's awesome. But I think there's an important distinction between that, which is about taking away diet rules and allowing yourself to have full permission to eat and more pleasure and telling people to swap out, quote unquote, processed foods for whole foods, which is a different thing. That's prescriptive and that's part of the wellness diet. In terms of Michael Pollan, because you mentioned that you liked him, I used to be a huge fan of his, too. And part of my early career as a dietitian or starting to study food policy, getting my master's in public health nutrition was like trying trying to be Michael Pollan, trying to go down this road of like a food writer and researcher who was really grounded in food policy. And I was wrapped up in the quote unquote obesity epidemic rhetoric at the time. But that was also back in my disordered eating days. And today, when I look back at his books from 10 years or so ago, like The Omnivore's Dilemma or the one that came after that, the two that came after that, I can see how intertwined some of his rhetoric is with arguments about the so-called obesity epidemic and that particular branch of diet culture, which the obesity epidemic, quote unquote, as a concept really came on the scene in the late 90s and early 2000s. And Michael Pollan and other people like him who are into food politics and stuff got unfortunately really swept up in this obesity epidemic rhetoric. And so Michael Pollan's work and other people like him have really contributed to the rise of the wellness diet that we're seeing everywhere now. So, you know, that's not to totally diss him. I think he's an amazing writer. Um, I think he, you know, has sort of evolved in his thinking in subsequent books and so isn't quite as rigid about this stuff now or as rigid as people have made it out to be because he's even said I heard him on a podcast say you know the fact that people are taking my words and using them as justification for orthorexic behavior is really unfortunate and that's not what I intended and I will occasionally eat a candy bar from a gas station and stuff like that so he's actually um, become more flexible and maybe always was more flexible about this stuff than his books might make it seem but you know, all that is to say still, I would really avoid his work for anyone who's struggling to make peace with food. And I think, you know, Lizzie, who asked the question, if you're working with this population of people who are struggling to make peace with food, I would avoid using any pollen influenced ideas with that population because there's just too much intellectual overlap with diet culture. There's too much potential for it to slide into the wellness diet. To your point about food companies, though, I hear you and I do think there are some issues with the modern food industry, not because of anything to do with weight, like you said, but primarily because the food industry is very tied up with diet culture. That's my main beef with it, is that it produces all these diety foods. It really gets on board with rhetoric about body size and certain bodies being better than others and markets foods that way. And so that is really terrible. Also, because some food companies aren't necessarily great to their workers or to animals or the environment. And so, you know, I don't really talk about that stuff here because it's just not relevant to making peace with food because it's so easy for discussions about the food industry to trigger diet culture thoughts and wellness diet thoughts in people. 
But I just want to make it clear that I'm no apologist for the food industry. I know it has its issues that need to be addressed at a policy level. It's not about individuals making choices. It's bigger than that, right? It's bigger than all of us. It's about policy stuff. And that goes for some organic food companies as well. It has nothing to do with the type of food, right, or even the food industry alone, because any company making any kind of product could have helpful label, labor practices or harmful ones, sustainable environmental practices or unsustainable ones. It's sort of an issue around industry and capitalism as a whole. So this is not just limited to the food industry. But all that being said, quote unquote processed food gets such a bad rap on the wellness diet and this current iteration of diet culture that I think it's really important to help people be open to these foods and not demonize them. Because people need to have unconditional permission to eat, you know, these types of foods, right, like candy bars and fast food meals and things like that, convenience foods, just like they have unconditional permission to eat anything else. And restricting those foods and demonizing those foods is only going to keep people stuck in diet culture. And there are also class implications to demonizing so-called processed foods because these foods are usually much cheaper than so-called whole foods, right? And they're a great way to feed a family if you don't have a lot of money or time to spend on making food from scratch because it's not just the money that you spend on the food, but it's also the labor that goes into producing the food, right? So with quote unquote whole foods, you're not just spending more on the ingredients themselves, but you're also spending more time preparing them from scratch. And, you know, if you're someone who's working multiple jobs just to try to survive and stay alive and maybe feed a family, that's just not going to fly, right? So the fact that we have convenience foods and fast food really allows people of lower socioeconomic status to survive. And that really is not appreciated by proponents of the wellness diet in the way that it should be, because having access to affordable food is a social justice issue. And I think the wellness diet just tends to sweep that under the rug. Um, so I would also really push back on the argument that, you know, the food made by big companies is full of chemicals and therefore bad, because honestly, every food is full of chemicals. Literally everything in the world is chemicals. That word gets a bad rap on the wellness diet because, again, the wellness diet likes to demonize some foods while elevating others. And that's a hallmark of diet culture. That's part of my definition of diet culture. But chemicals actually make up everything in the world, including our bodies and including all all of the wellness diet approved foods as well. So 99% of the human body is made up of six chemicals, oxygen, carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, calcium, and phosphorus. And those are all chemicals that you might remember from the periodic table of the elements in your high school chemistry class. And the other 1% of our bodies is uh, the less abundant chemicals in our bodies, like potassium, sulfur, sodium, chlorine, and magnesium, which are also on that periodic table and are also chemicals. So we humans are literally 100% chemicals. And that's true of everything else in the world, too, from your cat to the chair you're sitting in to the kale salads and smoothie bowls that the wellness diet is always pushing on people. So I'd invite you to really tease out what ideas you might still be holding on to from the wellness diet and what kind of language might be infusing your, your words that is coming from the wellness diet and really work on letting those go. Because especially when clients are coming from diet culture and they're coming to you as a refuge from diet culture, they're really attentive to anything that can be seen as prescriptive and they could latch on to any well-meaning ideas about so-called whole foods or so-called food quality and just turn that into the wellness diet. And with intuitive eating, the book Intuitive Eating, Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch really laid it out in a way that I think is so 
prescient, so, you know, makes so much sense. And 20 years later, whatever, from when they wrote it, it's still incredibly relevant in terms of its structure, because the idea of gentle nutrition is the last principle of intuitive eating. It comes at the end after you've done all this work to break down diet culture and get back in touch with your body's cues. And so I think that's really important to think about with anyone who's doing this kind of work with intuitive eating or helping people get back in touch with their bodies or helping people break free from diet culture is that we need to do a ton of work up front on breaking down the diet mentality and helping people, you know, get rid of those lingering diet rules. And it's only at the very end of the process that we can come back to nutrition with a sort of a clean slate and with a less a view that's less colored by diet culture. And even then, people will often still bring some or have some diet culture stuff get triggered in the process of starting to think about nutrition. And so then need to circle back through the um, rejecting the diet mentality stuff, you know, there so that they can put that to rest and then come back to the nutrition. And it's a bit of a dance. I talked about this in episode 127. If you want to give that a listen in terms of how to like how the principles of intuitive eating work and how to structure them. And in my intuitive eating fundamentals online course, I also have gentle nutrition at the very end and have a lot of sort of breaks in place for people to kind of check in with themselves about whether they're turning it into a diet, how to, you know, circle back to previous modules and get some uh, much needed support for, you know, eradicating the diet mentality before they come back again to uh, gentle nutrition. And so all of that is to say, if you're working with clients or thinking about working with clients with this stuff, I think that structure is super important. And of course, certain clients might be at a point in their journey where they're ready to think about this stuff, right? Where they, you know, they've gone through the princi- the other principles with you. They've gone through the kind of other nine general you know, domains of intuitive eating around making peace with food, learning to trust their body's cues or tune into those cues when they've been disconnected with them for a long time, you know, respecting their body, breaking down the diet mentality, all that good stuff. And so then they might be at the point where they're ready to think about learning how to make delicious foods from scratch. And if that's the case, you can totally support them in that and that'd be great. But just be vigilant for signs of the wellness diet popping up in those cases and talk about it. Because in my experience, it's really helpful to address these things directly with clients and explore the ways that diet culture might be creeping into their language and their view of things, even after they've done a ton of work on breaking it down. You know, once they circle back to gentle nutrition, that can often fire back up the diet culture voices in their mind. And so having a dialogue about it and really specifically, you know, just as I did, like, bringing attention to your language of using the word chemicals or using the word whole foods, right? With compassion and with thoughtfulness, bring some attention to their language and the ways that they're maybe conceiving of foods and how, you know, vestiges of the wellness diet could be popping up there or vestiges of other parts of diet culture in general. And, you know, there's that saying, you can only take people as far as you've gone yourself, So I think it would be really beneficial to your clients for you to keep doing your own work to let go of the vestiges of the wellness diet in yourself that you might be holding on to. And definitely have compassion for yourself when you do this because we've all been there and you're definitely not alone. You know, anyone in the health professions, I would say, has probably gone down this road themselves. 
And like I said, I had my own disordered eating history and a really long and winding journey out of the wellness diet myself. So I know how it is and I'm with you, you know, and we're all learning and growing constantly throughout our lives. So it's just part of the process and it's really nothing to feel bad about. But doing that work and continuing to do that work as you go along in your career as a health professional is really important for giving the best possible care to your clients and also the best possible care to yourself, the best self-care that you're able to muster, which oftentimes really requires eradicating those subtle levels of the diet mentality and diet culture. So I hope that helps. And thank you so much for that great question. I feel like this is a really rich discussion and I'm glad to have had the opportunity to have it. And so if you want to ask your own question for a chance to have it answered on an upcoming episode, go to christyharrison.com slash questions. That's christyharrison.com slash questions and ask your question there. And then if you want to have me answer all of your questions much faster, plus get access to a whole library of answers to help you break free from diet culture and make peace with food in your body, come join my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. The course has an exclusive monthly Q&A podcast that participants really love, and they've told me that they really help to make things clear and they love having that personal touch as part of the course. You'll also learn the principles of intuitive eating in depth in that structure that we talked about, and I'll help you troubleshoot common areas where people tend to get stuck with intuitive eating so that you can avoid falling for things like the wellness diet and truly be free from diet culture's clutches. Another thing that participants really love in the course is our private Facebook group, and it's exclusively for course participants, where you can connect with other great people on this intuitive eating journey and also get support from me and my awesome staff. So you really get a huge amount of community support and individual attention in this course, and you'll get lifetime access so that you can keep coming back for support for as long as you need. If you're ready to become an intuitive eater and leave diet culture behind once and for all, learn more and sign up for the course at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. And now without any further ado, let's go talk to Lindley Ashline. So tell me about your relationship with food growing up. So my family had a fairly strict culture around food. Um, it was very much a culture of you eat what you're given because we worked hard for this food and eat what you're given. You eat all of it. You don't get to pick and choose what gets put on your plate and you eat the serving that you're given, um, no matter whether you like it or not. And I coincidentally had, um, from the time that I was little on up, quite a few taste and texture sensitivities of the kind that you might see on the autism spectrum. And it led to the dinner table being kind of a battlefield because I would simply reject the foods that I didn't like because of taste or texture. And that just wasn't really an option in our family culture. So you would sit there until you ate it all. And so occasionally it would become kind of a battle where I would say, no, I'm not going to eat this. And it was, you're going to sit there until you do. And sometimes I would end up eating it and sometimes I wouldn't. But uh, it did end up being a bit of a confrontational culture around that food. Yeah, that sounds really fraught. Like the dinner table became a battlefield. Yeah. And it's hard for me looking back because I know that it's good for kids to try different foods. And so I think that that was a practice that didn't uh, work for particularly well for me because I had all those. And when I say sensitivities, I don't mean allergies. I mean things that are hard for me to eat because of the taste or texture. And because of that, I think that that approach maybe wasn't ideal, but I don't want to extrapolate that to the larger world either. Right. Well, it sounds like there was just no conversation around what could be going on for you too. Like the fact that taste and texture sensitivities were happening wasn't considered like a valid reason not to eat something, it sounds like. Well, I think for my own parents, it tied into discipline. 
It was, if you're obeying, you're going to eat what you're given. Because again, we worked hard to provide this food and it was good home cooked food. Um, my mom was a fantastic stay at home mom. And so she was a, a phenomenal cook. And so the, the foods that we were eating were things that had been provided by hand. And uh, I think not eating it became associated with being disobedient and just being picky being, I grew up, it's a little bit hard to tell looking back, but maybe lower middle class or, or working class. And uh, so we didn't go out to eat a lot, but when we did, you didn't order anything special off the menu. You didn't order anything plain or without onions or whatever. Like you ate it the way it came off because I don't know, that's how it worked. <laughs> and so, and so when, when you're provided food, that was what you ate. It was consistent across that sort of spectrum. Right. Yeah. So the desire not to sort of be a pain or make any modifications, it was just like, that's what it is. That's what we're given. Right. Right. Because I did have that benefit of, of having a stay-at-home mom. We didn't have a diet culture in our household in the sense that no one was actively dieting. And diets were never pushed on me as a kid, for which I'm very, very grateful. And because I just wasn't, I wasn't exposed to that young like a lot of women are. But it was very much... My parents did strive to keep what they considered unhealthy foods out of the house. And of course, what was considered unhealthy then and what is considered unhealthy now, that changes over time. So like we always had margarine instead of butter. And now, of course, you know, quote, healthy, unquote, the views around that have changed. When I say healthy, I always end up sort of putting air quotes around it, which yeah, you can't say. But, <laughs> no. um, but that, you know, the things that were considered healthy. So we always had margarine and so on. But we always had, uh, we never had white bread in the house. It was always wheat bread. Uh, we always had our snacks tended to be things like vegetables and, and you know, peanut butter and crackers. And, and those were good snacks. And I liked them. Don't get me wrong. But it meant that we didn't tend to have a whole lot of very sweet or very savory foods around the house. So when I did get the chance... Uh, like a lot of kids who aren't exposed to that very much, when I did get the chance, you know, I was going to seek out that candy and seek out that really sugary fruit cocktail, the 10% juice drinks, <laughs> or the Kool-Aid or the very salty pretzels or whatever. Like I, I was really, I really like zoomed in on those whenever I had the opportunity. That's so interesting. I, I've heard that from so many people now, and it really seems to be such a thing in people's relationships with food that if you're not exposed to those things as a kid, you just sort of don't learn how to regulate yourself around them. You know, you don't learn how to enjoy them and then also not feel like obsessed or fixated on them. And and when I when I was a teenager and I started getting pocket money and I started when I got a car and I got out on my own I was going to the gas station and I was buying all the candy that I could afford with my little part time jobs and and I was going to get the most savory or the most sweet foods um, and again part of that is that those highly palatable foods tie in really well to my particular taste and texture sensitivities because I'm really attracted to those. And even as an adult, I tend to seek those things out. And now, after a long journey, I'm able to incorporate those things in as part of my intuitive eating. But as a teenager, when I was sort of released, gradually released from those boundaries that had been set for me around food, I had a really hard time for a long time finding my own boundaries and, and my own, do I actually want this? because it's what I want right now or simply because I can. Like a rebellion. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, food was very much part of my teenage rebellion now that I think <laughs> about it. <laughs> yeah. 
I know I'm going to go eat all those things. <laughs> right. Yeah. Cause you get the freedom and the, you know, nobody's watching over you anymore. So yeah, go to town, you know, it's like, of course. <laughs> right. And that's interesting. How did that affect your relationship with food in terms of like, did you feel it as a rebellion? Was it uh, something that was problematic to you? Because you said you weren't really exposed to diet culture. So there wasn't that probably shame around it the way that people who are exposed to diet culture are, but maybe that happened more in your teens. I don't know. I think I bit, had a bit of an atypical childhood because I grew up in a fairly rural area and I was a nerdy kid and I didn't have a lot of friends. I got bullied in school quite a bit. And my parents decided that they didn't want their kids exposed to some of the messages that they might get through cable TV. So I grew up essentially without access to TV or magazines and I didn't I didn't have a whole lot of friends. And so I didn't get a lot of those messages. <laughs> On the downside, it means that I missed my whole generation of pop culture. <laughs> so, so I've never seen Star Wars and you know like I, I don't and I don't really watch a lot of TV now. I grew up not being acclimated to that pop culture. And so now I don't really care, honestly. Um, and so on the downside, it means I don't tend to get jokes. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> but on the upside, it means that I didn't get exposed to a lot of those messages. Now, of course, it doesn't matter if you're being raised by wolves in the United States you're going to get the diet culture messages. And so, I mean, I absorbed plenty from the people around me, but I didn't have, I, I wasn't getting the media messages necessarily. Mm. So yeah, it wasn't as saturated. Right, right. And looking back, I'm really grateful for that because I didn't have nearly as much, I didn't have as many hooks to pull out. But I mean, I still got lots of the diet culture messages. But when I hear about folks who were put on diets as kids or or as teenagers or who were attracted to that themselves as teenagers and, and got into that pretty young. I never had a specific actionable guilt. It was just this underlying guilt about my body, but it wasn't a, a thing I thought I could necessarily do anything about, if that makes sense. Um, it was just my body is terrible, but I didn't necessarily feel compelled to do a specific thing about it other than eat less and exercise more because that was kind of the general thing that I absorbed. Right. That's sort of like the 101 of diet culture that everybody in our society gets, I think, is, you know, even if you're really insulated from it, you're still getting that sort of general idea and that general idea that like, you know, your body has something wrong with it or whatever. But you didn't have the specific kind of notions of like what you're supposed to do, quote unquote. Right. And I was actually a pretty average sized kid growing up um, and pretty hit. Like, like many folks, suddenly I, I expanded <laughs> and suddenly I looked like every other woman in my family. We're all sort of pear or rectangular shaped, very large bodied white women. And part of why I think I didn't get as many of those messages growing up is because I was sort of acceptably sized until puberty. And then all of a sudden I had this body that was very unacceptable. And now I look back at the body that I had then and I was, um, I guess what we would consider an in-betweeny now. I was in that range. Um, it wasn't until I got to college that I really started getting out of in-betweeny and into true plus sizing. But in that time and place, in that small town in the 90s, there weren't clothes in those sizes. It, it was very, very difficult. So it was basically Walmart or nothing because that was what was available. And so when I went to prom, I went to prom three years. And the first year, my mom made my prom dress because 
there just weren't prom dresses in that sort of larger in-betweeny size. And the second and third years, I think I did find commercially made dresses, but we had to go very far afield for them. So the messages that I was getting about my body as a teenager were less specific diet culture and more your body is unacceptable because the world is not made for it. Uh, And again, it wasn't pushing me necessarily to do a whole lot active about it. But as I was sitting down and thinking before our chat today, something really interesting came up for me that starting in high school, I knew that I wanted to diet as this amorphous goal. But something that I don't hear talked about a lot is dieting as a class marker, dieting as a um, indicator of wealth. And of course, we look at size, body size as a class marker. I see a lot of analysis around that, but not so much the actual act of dieting because diet foods are expensive. Meal replacements are expensive. And of course, paying for a membership to say Weight Watchers or whatever, that's expensive when you're poor. And so it became a life goal. Like when someday when I'm rich, I'm going to diet. That is so interesting. It was not considered within your reach at that point, but you were, it was really an aspiration. It was. And I, of course, I wasn't connecting it to, you know, some of the analysis that I do these days around it being like a class marker or an indicator of class. But, uh, but it was very much, yeah, this aspirational thing. When I have the money to diet, then I'm going to diet and then I'll be thin and acceptable. That's so interesting, too, that like, I mean, it's a class marker. I'm doing a lot of research right now on the history of diet culture and how it came to be. And it really is so tied up in the idea of class, even from the start, like the thin ideal and the pursuit of the thin ideal is so tied up in the construction of whiteness, the construction of the middle class. Like I talked with this about this with Emily Contois in our episode, but I'm kind of like going down this rabbit hole now with all this research on it because I'm writing a book and I'll probably be able to announce that by the time this episode comes out. All right. Yeah. And yeah, it's just really fascinating how that still persists. You know, I think all the class distinctions around body size, you know, perpetuated by well-meaning people, even in this sort of quote unquote food movement, you know, connecting like lack of access to food and low income communities to body size in a really problematic and harmful way is one sort of aspect of that discourse. But then I think also just like the way the diet culture exists these days, you know, where it's very underground. It's like, oh, this isn't a diet. It's a lifestyle change. Like even Weight Watchers, you know, uh, (laughs) promotes itself Mm -hmm. as not being a diet anymore, as being a lifestyle and everything, you know, clean eating and paleo and Whole30, like they're all, you know, marketing themselves as not diets, even though they have everything in common with diets of the past. They're just sort of, you know, not saying they're diets or they're, they're doing things in a slightly different way that makes it easier for them to go underground and and not seem like diets. And with all of these sneaky diets, too, I think it's like becoming more and more out of reach for people who don't have money. Kale smoothies are incredibly expensive. Whole30, <laughs> like, you know, cutting out all these staple foods that provide nourishment and energy for a relatively low price, like that's out on the Whole30 or that's out on paleo or whatever it is, you know? And so... It's creating this sort of more and more rarefied atmosphere where diets and this pursuit of the quote unquote healthy ideal, which is basically just the thin ideal in another package, is only reserved for the few. Absolutely. And I think now that dieting as dieting, I think that has become a a class marker in the opposite direction. If you're dieting, 
you don't get it. You haven't caught on. Like that's not what we do nowadays. Now it's a lifestyle change. Right. Yeah. Like that people that are still counting calories or whatever are just behind the times or something. <laughs> right. That's not fashionable. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and of uh, course, again, it comes back to class markers and to to status. And so with Weight Watchers constantly rebranding themselves and, and other companies constantly rebranding themselves, but Weight, Weight Watchers happens to be in the news right now. But that's very much a trying to catch up with that status marker so that to recapture that higher status market. Totally. Yeah, because I mean, I think all companies try to advertise themselves as quote unquote aspirational. That's, you know, the use of aspirational marketing helps create this idea that like you're not enough as you are and therefore buy our products so that you will be enough. And I think, yeah, Weight Watchers was sort of losing that. And maybe that's part of why they were losing market shares, that they they didn't have that aspirational thing going on. And now they're trying to reclaim that. Right. And in my current work, which I know we'll get to later, but I do a lot of thinking around that aspirational marketing and and pushing back against that. Yeah, I love that. I, I'm so excited to talk more about that. But I, you know, I'm curious kind of how that connects to what you went through yourself. Like where where did it go from, you know, that sort of idea of diets as aspirational in your teens? Well, when I went to college, um, I continued to be in that very much, you know, that aspirational mindset that eventually when I <laughs> when I'm not a poor college student, I'll die. I went to one college for several years and I ended up marrying um, after that third year, I ended up marrying my high school sweetheart and who I'm still together with. Hi, honey. <laughs> um, it's been almost 20 years that we've been together and very much. But uh, at any rate, he'll, he'll come back into my story here in a moment. But so I went to the one college for three years and then we got married and I transferred to his university to finish out my schooling. And I was there for a little bit because I, I lost some of my credits when I transferred. And my previous campus, the campus clinic, the little doctor's clinic on campus, um, they weren't really equipped to handle a whole lot except strep throat or motto or, um, or pregnancy. This, I remember mine always, every time I came in for anything, it was like, take a pregnancy test. Like <laughs> <laughs> This was uh, my, my first college was um, a very conservative, small Christian college. And so pregnancy, we didn't we probably didn't not. Yeah. <laughs> So, so for us, it was strep throat. Everything you like, you got a strep throat test for everything. <laughs> so, so, but after I transferred, I was at this large state university and they had a real campus clinic. And again, I had this, you know, I had absorbed some of this diet culture over time and I, and I had this aspirational thing in the back of my head. Well, I went to, I actually had the flu and I went to the, the campus doctor and he took one look at me. And asked if I was on a diet. Oh, God. And I said no. And I, I mean, I'm croaking out no because I, I had the flu. And he gave me something for the flu. But he was much more interested in talking about dieting. And so he had me make a second appointment and come back to talk to him about my weight. And at the time, that was fantastic. I was really excited because I'm like, oh, great. Here is a partner that is going to, we're going to get this started. Like, I didn't have any more money than I did previously. But like. For me, it seemed like the universe telling me, this is when you're going to start. So I went in and he told me that if I didn't lose a significant amount of weight, I would 100% sure have diabetes within 10 years. Oh, my God. What an irresponsible claim to make. Oh, absolutely. I have no family history. None of my health markers indicated any such. And he hadn't asked. I hadn't been, you know, they, did, they weren't testing anything. It was just, you, this will happen to you, which, of course, freaked me right out, <laughs> you know. 
And I didn't want that to happen. Um, and he told me, you need to start dieting. You need to start you know, eating healthier, exercising more. And also, if you cut out, um, at the time, my main source of caffeine was sodas. And if you cut out all sodas and don't drink anymore, you will just naturally lose all the weight you need to lose. Oh, God. So, again, I hadn't necessarily been exposed to specific diets. And this was before the internet was really uh, in full swing like it is now. So, so I just started eating. I don't know why it was, but like all all the time because it was the lowest calorie food I could think of at the time. <laughs> it lasted about a month and a half. I was hungry all the time. I had no energy, um, just like you would expect from someone who's not getting any protein and is <laughs> only and the occasional you know, I was attempting to do that three meals a day. Um, and looking back, I don't know what else I expected, but, and I did, I, I rapidly lost a small amount of weight, but to me, that was, it was progress. But I was also, I was a college student. I had a lot of credit hours. I was working part-time and also I had a marriage and I eventually just gave it up and I felt guilty about it, but I just had other things I had to do. And as a poor college student, I didn't have, again, I still didn't have the money to invest in, I don't know, slim, slim fast was a big thing at the time. So, you know, but I didn't have the money for those shakes and I guess I just sort of dropped it. And so I still felt the guilt, but I just, I guess I just figured I was a failure and I was never going to lose the weight and I kind of moved on. And also I didn't get diabetes, <laughs> um, you know, and, and the doctor didn't follow up because the doctor had 25,000 college students and which is just as well. And so I just kind of moved on. And so I felt guilty about it, but I just never took any more actions. And now I'm really grateful for that. But it was just always that underlying guilt. Right. Which is so unfortunate because diets are really not made for people to stick to long term. And what you were doing, you know, is certainly impossible for the body to sustain for any length of time. So it was your body's natural response, probably just to make you kind of lose the, you know, wherewithal to keep doing that, to lose the drive, to lose the, the desire to keep doing that. And I mean, it's great that you had this sort of history that you had of food was a little bit of a battleground, but it wasn't for dieting reasons. There wasn't that pressure on you from childhood or anything to diet. So you could kind of go back to a status quo that wasn't, you know, body shaming. Right. And I, I also got quite lucky that the person I married had not been not been involved in diet culture at all. And so my husband brought that very laid back relationship with food into our marriage. And I never learned to cook. I don't cook at all. I can make, because I'm Southern, I can make killer sweet tea and sweet potato casserole, but that is the limits of my cooking. And because I had this wonderful stay at home mom, she didn't really pressure me to learn. I'm sure that she would have taught me if I had shown any, any interest whatsoever, but I just didn't, I didn't have any interest in the process. Like I like eating food, but I don't really care about how it's formed. <laughs> and, and so when we got married um, and we, we kind of sat down and split up household duties and I said, Hey, you know, how do you feel about cooking? And he said, Oh, uh, I guess I can. And I said, great. So he, he does the cooking and, and we've done this ever since we got married. Um, he does the cooking and I do the planning. 
but since I'm the pickier of the two of us, he'll eat anything. So, so I find new recipes and I occasionally adapt them so that they're something that I will eat. And I make sure that, you know, I, I create the meal plans every couple of weeks. I don't plan, I don't say on Tuesday, we have to have this, but I do plan about every two weeks. I'll go in and say, okay, why don't we have, you know, this menu of things so that we have the ingredients on hand. Right. So when you go grocery shopping, you can get the stuff for those recipes. Right. So when I'm talking about meal planning, I'm not talking about it in like that diet sense. It's just more, we need stuff on hand. Right. Totally. Yeah. What are we, so what are we going to eat this week? And so I do all that. Essentially, I do the emotional labor around food and he does the the physical labor and it works out really, really well. And so in our relationship, food has just never been an issue. I don't ever get messages from him that I need to lose weight or that maybe I'm not as, as attractive as when we got married because I'm heavier now. We just don't have that. And I am incredibly lucky to have <laughs> to have stumbled into that kind of healthy relationship. Sometimes when we go out, we split meals. If we're not particularly hungry, sometimes we get our own and sometimes it's comfort food for us. And sometimes it's just food. I feel just so blessed and so lucky to be in a relationship where food is just food. Yeah, that's amazing. I think a lot of people do struggle with you know, difficulties in their relationships around that because everybody has their own relationship with food. And then you come together in a relationship. It's kind of like anything else. You know, you have your own relationship with money. You have your own relationship with cleanliness, with time, with, you know, everything. And then you kind of have to navigate that with other people or with another person that you're in a relationship with. And it's, it's really fortunate to find someone who is sort of on the same page with you with the food stuff and can kind of support a really balanced relationship with food. I also am very fortunate to have a husband who has a very good relationship with food of his own. And I think I kind of sought that out because I had gone through a lot in my relationship with food before. And I had, you know, when I was in my 20s, I struggled with an eating disorder and then disordered eating. And, you know, through that phase was dating people who also had their own issues with food because I think we sort of clicked on those fronts. And so it was, you know, sort of exacerbating the underlying stuff I was going through. And so once I recovered from that and was able to have, you know, my intuitive eating kind of come back into play, I really, and I was single, I was like, this is going to be a non-negotiable for me is to find someone who has a good relationship with food. And I didn't know, of course, anytime I would go on a date, like what I would find. And of course, like a lot of people that I met would be like, oh, you work in the field of nutrition and dietetics. Let me tell you about my clean eating. Let me tell you about my elimination diet. And I'd be like, nope, <laughs> you know, like this is not going to work. So, yeah, I feel very fortunate that I was able to kind of make that decision when when I was single and had gone through my own work of recovering. But like, I think it's interesting people who just kind of fall into a relationship early on and have to navigate the issues with food as they go with their partner can always be sort of fraught. So yeah, it's very fortunate that you found a partner who is supportive. Well, when I got, when I graduated from college and got out into the working world, um, I still had that, I still had a little bit of that aspirational dieting in the back of my mind because now I have an actual income. Maybe now is the time. And so I started edging back towards it a little bit. But I had also, we had also just moved out of state. We moved outside Washington, D.C. and started working there. Uh, we both found jobs up there. And I had a lot going on. And again, it just, because the hooks weren't that strong in me, there were just other priorities. But again, in the back of my head, it was still that 
oh, well, now that I have a little bit of money over and above living expenses, maybe I should get back into that. But instead, I found LiveJournal and got very active in LiveJournal. And from there, I stumbled across the fashionista community there on LiveJournal. This was 2006-ish. And it was this amazing active community of fat women who wore neat clothing. And it was just a revelation for me because... Uh, when I was a kid, I wore whatever my parents bought. I wasn't particularly fashion-minded, partly because I wasn't being exposed to pop culture. And when I was a teenager, part of it was that I didn't have money to go shopping. Like I know a lot of folks talk about feeling very isolated as teenagers because they weren't able to go shopping with their friends. Like I didn't have friends and I didn't go shopping. <laughs> so, I, mean, I mean, I had friends, but I didn't have the kind of close friends that you would go to the mall with. That just wasn't a thing for me. And so as a teenager, I wore a combination of the things that my parents were buying for me and then like thrift store, whatever would fit on my body. And I rejected fashion entirely, partly because I just wasn't all that interested to begin with. And partly because there were so few clothes that would even fit me that I was wearing a lot of men's clothing, a lot of very baggy and fashionable things because that was what I could afford that would fit on my body. And it became clear to me from a cultural standpoint that fashion wasn't for people like me because even if it was, I mean, I can't even buy things that are fashionable even if I wanted to and had the money. And so I rejected it entirely. And all through college, I just wore whatever was cheap and would fit on my body. A lot of, you know, a lot of Walmart and thrift store stuff. And, and of course, there's nothing wrong with that. But part of it, I think part of it did feel like a little bit of punishment for having that particular body. So part of it was fine. I don't want you anyway. Fine, I don't care. But then also, even if I did care, I wouldn't have any choice. So when I discovered this fashionista community, it was just these people are wearing nice clothes because they can and because they're making the efforts to find them. And they look really great, even though they're my size. And it, it kind of blew my mind. <laughs> yeah. That must have been a revelation. I mean, where were people finding plus size clothes at that time? Like, what were the options like? Oh, a lot of it was Lane Bryant type stuff um, that they were putting together in combinations that weren't sad polyester sacks. Because sad polyester sacks is what the plus size market has looked like for for many decades um, until quite recently in the grand scheme of things. And uh, and so some of, some of it was thrift store stuff. Some of it was that uh, some of those were were people in the in-between range who were able to find things from some mainstream stores. Some of them were making clothing. Some of them were finding these really rare vintage pieces that, that were really fabulous. But some of it was just, it was also my first introduction to you don't need to be stylish or fashionable by mainstream standards to enjoy what you're putting on your body and that you can wear things. This was my first introduction to deliberately wearing horizontal stripes. And to wearing all black if you feel like it, or really bright colors if you feel like it. Like that was, it blew my mind. Not having those rules, right? Not being those fashion rules about what fat women should and shouldn't wear. And so a lot of it was just watching other people break those boundaries again and again and again. And so gradually, over 10 years, so very gradually, but I surrounded myself with plus size women doing fabulous things almost entirely online. So from Fashionista, I found um, there's an old website called Shapely Prose that Kate Harding used to run. And Kate is a phenomenal writer. And I, I very much wish that she had stayed in that 
writing field because she changed so many lives, including mine. I would just go to this blog. And of course, at the time, 2006, 2007, blogs were pretty new as well. And it was just this whole world of fat people being amazing that I could kind of watch from the sidelines. And, you know, maybe, maybe one day I could be that cool. (laughs) And it gave me, I think it replaced my aspiration for dieting with an aspiration for, I wish I could accept myself like they do. I wish I could be that fashionable fat lady. It hit me at exactly the right time to keep me from really diving headlong into this, back into diet culture. That's amazing. That's really fortunate. What a beautiful community to stumble into. I remember I read um, Lessons from the Fatosphere, the book by Kate Harding, and I forget her co-author's name, but it was an amazing book. And it was sort of one of my first uh, introductions into fat acceptance, like, I don't know, five or 10 years ago or something almost. And it I was still steeped in diet culture. I was like going to school to be a dietitian, but a friend of mine was into health at every size and fat acceptance. And I, my first career was as a journalist and I, you know, did that freelance throughout my going to school to be a dietitian. And I was guest editing this package on childhood obesity, quote unquote. And this friend was like, I have to recuse myself. I can't edit this package or be a part of it because, uh, or, you know, I can't edit it. He was a staff editor at this website. And I was like, you know, he tapped me to do it because he was like, I can't do it because it's totally out of line with my ethics, but I'll edit the stuff that you write for it. And I'll write a piece for it, you know, sort of a counterpoint to this idea that we have to do something about quote unquote childhood obesity. And so it was a really great sort of working relationship because it opened my eyes to health at every size idea. And I was so not ready to accept them at the time, but I did at least get curious and I bought the Fat Studies Reader and I bought uh, Lessons from the Fatosphere and I was like, all right, let me just see what this fat acceptance thing is all about, you know, and I was blown away by the writing in Lessons from the Fatosphere and, and, you know, still wasn't like on board with the ideas. But much later, I circled back to it and was like, this book is incredible. This is really so well written and so much fun to read. Yeah, those folks who did that early work, like I just can't think of them enough. I really need to sit down and write them all, find them all wherever they are now and write them fan mail. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Even just the people who were going into this community on LiveJournal and being publicly fat and living their lives because we have all these internal messages about the things we can't do as people who live in large bodies Uh, We can't exercise in public. We can't go after certain careers. We can't do this or that until we live in smaller bodies. And these people were just living their lives and they weren't letting those messages interfere with the things that they wanted to do and to be. And again, that was just such a stunning thing for me to find. And I gradually got more and more I don't want to say involved because I was very much a lurker in those communities. I was very, very much like appreciating it and occasionally responding to something. But it took several years before I really started participating, uh, before I started posting my own outfit of the day blogs. And social media, as we know it, was really just starting to form. So it wasn't Instagram, but it was like, I, you know, for a while I had an outfit of the day blog and it was just looking at myself that way, taking my own photos of myself just with a self-timer on my camera, but it was seeing yourself like that over and over 
made a huge difference for me too. Yeah, because it's one thing, I think, to start to accept other people's bodies and appreciate other people's bodies. And I think it's another level or another layer of difficulty to get to a place of appreciating your own body and, you know, yourself in pictures and stuff like that. Yeah, because it's really easy to get into the the self-narrative of body acceptance might be great for other people. And I think it's great that she accepts her body and that he accepts his body and that she accepts her body. But my body is uniquely flawed. You just don't understand. Totally. My body is the worst because I have this health problem that fat people get, or I have diabetes or, or my arms, I have bingo wings. Which is, I actually really love saying that because it's such a silly, silly phrase. It is. <laughs> it's kind of catchy. I feel like if I ever release an album, it might be named Bingo Wings. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> but it, or my first book. I Memoir. But, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And this is a, a bit of a tangent, but I look at my own upper arms, my own Bingo Wings, and I'm reminded of my grandmother. Uh, she had those exact same arms and she had dangling fat on her arms that wobbled when she moved her arms. And she was, um, at the time that I knew her growing up, of course she was older and she, she was a very conservative politically and socially person, but she wore sleeveless tops all the time. I mean, and they were very nice, you know, coverage otherwise, but I guess she just didn't give a crap about her upper arms. And, but so when I look at those, I see that heritage, I see that connection. And I think if an 80 year old woman who, whose arms were actually much bigger than even mine are now could like, and it kind of made a difference for me again, at the time that I was posting these outfit of the day posts, if an 80 year old woman can sit there and be totally okay with her upper arm fat, why can't I? Something about that heritage was really meaningful for me at the time. And, and so I gradually got more and more involved in this. And again, I didn't have as many hooks to remove. So this journey was quite a bit easier for me, I think, than, than for a lot of other people because I didn't even approach it as I need to be okay with my body and I'm going to try these things to see myself. For me, it was just it was just this natural progression. And I it wasn't something I went into with an intent and it wasn't something that... I approached as a healing process, but it very much ended up being that way. How did photography play into all that? Like your career as a photographer, were you already trained in it at the time and doing that professionally? Or did that sort of develop along with your body acceptance journey? I started doing nature photography, like many people who go eventually go into portrait photography. I, I started out in nature photography. And that is something I really, I still very, very much love. And it was very basic. Oh, there's a pretty flower click. And I started that in about 2002. And at the time, digital photography was very, very new. And so I started out in digital. I never worked with film, um, but I started out with this camera that I borrowed from my campus technology center. And it literally held a floppy disk yeah. in, <laughs> in the drive, in, uh. in, in the physical camera. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was enormous. <laughs> and, but at the time, that was cutting edge. And eventually, and eventually they made a, a similar camera that held a CD-ROM. And I can't remember if I ever used one of those or not. So it was, it was several years before I got a camera of my own because they were so, digital was so expensive at the time. Uh, but digital was what really appealed to me. So, uh, so I had a friend's camera that I would borrow. And eventually I did get my own little point and shoot. And from there, I gradually worked up to DSLRs. And it never, it, again, it wasn't an intentional process of, I am going to shoot with my camera people. And 
when I started doing the outfit of the day photos, again, it, it wasn't a self-portraiture process so much as I like this outfit. I'm going to put it on a blog and this is how I need to do it. Um, so I didn't really learn to work with people with my camera until relatively recently. I had a career in software marketing and this was three or four years ago. I had one of a series of jobs that, okay, this is going to be a bit of a tangent, but I'll bring it back. Last fall, I I have a lavender bush in my front yard and that lavender bush is big and beautiful and it spawns, it drops little seedlings around it. And when I was cleaning up my garden in the fall, I decided to bring some of those seedlings inside and grow them over the winter on a windowsill. And four of the five seedlings are still alive. And so I, I have successfully kept them alive. And they've grown a little bit, but they haven't thrived. Like they're, they're never going to be big and robust like the, the ones that are growing outside. And that's kind of how I felt in that career. Like I was surviving and I was making good money and I was reasonably happy with myself, but I just wasn't thriving. And I seemed to keep stumbling into jobs with a lot of dysfunction and a lot of unhappiness. And I finally said, I can't do this anymore. Um, I hired a life coach and she said, you are clearly passionate about photography. Why are you not doing that? I said, uh, I don't know. (laughs) And we sat down and we figured out a business plan. And I won't say that I jumped into it and never looked back. I do still work some part-time corporate work so that I can pay bills. But it's been a gradual transition out of corporate work and into my own business. And when I decided that I was going to, to have my photography as a business... I knew that nature photography wasn't going to pay bills. It's incredibly difficult to make a living in nature photography. And so I started looking at portrait work. And immediately, immediately, I knew that I couldn't do the mainstream traditional portrait photography where everything is Photoshopped and and it's very, very mercenary from a body standpoint where people will do whatever it takes to get business, including the Photoshopping. And... So I immediately started looking at plus size women as my market and started thinking about bringing my photography world and my fat acceptance world together. And I spent a couple months planning before I ever started advertising for clients and started working with people because I wanted to be able to approach women in large bodies as people with valid bodies. I didn't want to do this mainstream photography minimization thing. I didn't want to Photoshop away fat rolls. I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to say, come work with me and I will make you look normal or make you look thin or make you look small. And so I really had to be very deliberate and I had to reject a lot of what I was learning from the photography community about bodies and about posing Um, Because posing is an art, and a lot of that art is devoted to making people look smaller than they are. It is. All the posing tips that I've heard and that I sometimes still default to in pictures, like hand on your hip and bevel your foot or whatever, all that stuff. It's like angling you away from the camera so you won't appear as wide. Mm -hmm. There are hundreds of photography tricks, and certain lenses make people look bigger. Certain lenses make people look smaller. Certain depths of field will make you look larger or smaller. Certain angles, you know, the angle of your arm as opposed to the angle of your leg can say entirely different things to the camera. And I had to find a compromise because everything that I was absorbing from the photography community 
was diet culture. But at the same time, I wanted my clients to be able to access some of those mainstream beauty standards and have that be achievable for them, but without minimizing the bodies they actually have or rejecting those or changing those. And so my work has ended up being about that compromise a little bit, about saying, I'm going to make this accessible for you without compromising who you actually are and your actual body. I think that's really important and really interesting as a project because access to mainstream beauty standards, I think, gives people access to other things, right? It's It gives people power. And that sucks that we live in a society where that's true. And yet, if people who are marginalized want to access more resources, you know, that is one way in potentially one sort of trick that people can harness, which is why, like, I'm always saying when talking about things like choice feminism, you know, it's not inherently feminist to wear lipstick just because you're a feminist and you say you're doing it for feminist reasons, not necessarily because there's a lineage there that comes from patriarchy. And yet it's still totally possible and totally fine. And like, who am I to judge or anyone to judge someone who is a feminist who wants to wear lipstick and I wear makeup too, because there is an access to greater resources if you choose to do some of those things that are, you know, handed down to us from the patriarchy. Like it makes life harder sometimes to reject those standards. And so if you want to, you know, have a life where you can maybe do bigger and better things to smash the patriarchy and not have to fight the daily battles on a particular front, you can choose to say like, I'm just going to go with the mainstream beauty standard here to the extent that I can for my, you know, body and my resources and whatever, and like save my battles for somewhere else. Absolutely. When I seriously started looking at becoming a professional photographer, I discovered that there was another big hook that I had to pull out that was associated with diet culture. Uh, Because for a long time, I had thought about being a wedding photographer many, many years. But that was one of the things that in my head, fat women aren't allowed to do. You can't be a wedding photographer. Who's going to hire a fat woman as, a, as their wedding photographer from both a physical standpoint, um, as in, are you going to be able to physically fit like between the chairs at the reception? <laughs> are you going to physically get in people's way? Because in my head, I think my, my physical bulk affects the environment. And like, I, I was blowing this up, but in my head, like, it was, it was half, would you physically be able to do it? And the other half was, well, nobody's going to hire a fat woman as a wedding photographer, especially not for like these beautiful high-end weddings. Um, and so I, I really had to get past that. But when I got past that, I realized that I didn't want to do weddings anyway. <laughs> it had been looming in my mind for a decade that I really want to be a photographer. And in my head, that automatically meant photographing weddings. But then when I, when I really sat down and said, okay, what do I want to do as a photographer? Weddings weren't even on my radar. And so what I really wanted to do was work with people individually. So I decided to pursue portrait work and boudoir work and to take photos of fat small business owners for their websites and their social media and so on. And finding this compromise was really important. I'm pretty happy with where I've landed because we do, uh, particularly for a boudoir session, which is uh, for anybody who's unfamiliar with that, that's, um, it's sort of saucy photos, lingerie type photos where we do full makeup and we do fancy hair and you put on fabulous lingerie or a bra and panties or, you know, or nothing. (laughs) Um, I'm, I'm really laid back about what people bring. You absolutely don't have to have fancy lingerie. If you enjoy dressing up, this is your chance to do it. If you don't, 
then don't because you'll feel uncomfortable. And then we do suggestive and saucy photographs from that. And it is a field that is, if you Google for boudoir photography, it's full of, like every other photography field, full of aspirational photos. And I just decided to reject 90% of the aspirational nonsense because the body you have now is worthy of being photographed. It is beautiful exactly how it is. And so once again, we find that compromise because we do a lot of the traditional boudoir posing and we do the hair and we do the makeup if you want to do those. Some people say, no, I'm coming in totally, totally bare, you know, totally no makeup, no hair, just me. Um, But most people do do that because that lets them access that mainstream beauty standard of having the beautiful makeup and having the fancy hair and doing those poses. Um, But really early on, as I was learning posing, I went through and I rejected all the poses that were intended for extreme minimization or intended. um, There are certain poses that are designed so that the photographer can go back later and easily Photoshop away fat rolls. And I won't do it. I've never learned how to use the Photoshop which is what they use to take away fat rolls. Um, Because if I don't know how to do it, then I can't put any pressure on myself or anybody else. Um, I just won't. But I I had to go through, if you're familiar with the photography industry, you know that there's a ton of Photoshopping that goes on. Everything you see, everything you see now is, is Photoshopped. And I had to decide what is the minimum amount of retouching that I can do and still allow people to access that beauty standard without erasing who they are. And it was a process of going through and going, okay, I'm not going to, well, am I going to do skin smoothing? Yes, because if I don't do any skin smoothing with high resolution photography, it's very noticeable. And it puts people so far outside that Photoshop standard that it's distracting. And so, yes, okay, I'll do skin smoothing, but only very minimal. And yeah, okay, yes, I'll remove acne. And in anything that's really, really impermanent, like like when people get embarrassed or very nervous, a lot of people will get a flush on their chest or their ears will turn bright red. <laughs> and, I'll, and I'll, you know, and I'll, I'll minimize that. But I'm not going to take away your wrinkles. I'm not going to make you look 20 years younger. I'm not going to take away that fat roll. And to a certain extent, I'm not going to pose you to pretend you don't have fat rolls because that's almost everybody has a fat roll somewhere or a little bit of belly or or cellulite. And I, I'm not going to pretend you don't have that because everybody has that. And we're just lying to ourselves when we pretend that we're the only ones with uniquely terrible bodies. And like society and Photoshop and the, you know, the media are lying to us all the time about that stuff and making us feel terrible shame. So I think it's such a good social project to be real about that stuff and show it and not to hide it and to show like, yeah, everybody has this rather than you're the weird freak that has this, which is what, you know, society wants you to think. Right. And, and for clients, it can be, it's a very vulnerable experience. I think I, and I'm very, very open and pointed in my materials that I give people that I'm not going to do those things because particularly if you've worked with another photographer recently, you may come in expecting those things. And I don't want people to come in expecting that more mainstream experience when we're doing something else, but it's a very vulnerable experience when people come in because they know that I'm not intending to minimize them. They know that I'm not going to shove them into that mainstream box, no matter what body they actually have. And that means that that you're forced to look at the body you actually have at your 64-year-old body or your 30-year-old body or your 
you know, 78 year old body or your 46 year old body, as opposed to, oh, well, we can pretend you still have a 22 year old body. And that's very vulnerable looking at the body that you actually have. Yeah, it really is. And I mean, like you said, you know, with the idea of different angles or lenses or poses changing how you look. I always think when I'm looking at photography, especially if I have like headshots done or something and I'm looking at a huge series of photographs of myself, I'm like, okay, this is just a moment in time. This is like a split second. And you can sort of see it in a series too, because it's like you move your head slightly and suddenly the photograph is entirely different. You can sort of see the like, almost like an animation from one pose to another, how you're moving and how that changes the ultimate still. And, you know, I think that Sometimes people that I work with who are trying to make peace with their bodies really get fixated on photos and, you know, get tagged in a photo on Facebook or something and like spend hours, you know, ruminating about it because they look a way that they didn't want to look in that photo usually outside of the narrow beauty standard that our society sets forth in some way. And so, you know, feeling intense shame and self-loathing about it, or maybe they're feeling triggered to restrict their eating or go back to some sort of disordered behavior, other, you know, another disordered behavior because of how they look in the photo. And I think like taking away the power of photos like that and sort of allowing yourself to say like, photos lie, you know, photos have, there's ways in which they highlight or shadow certain things or just, you know, capture a particular moment in time that's not really how you look when you're in motion and you're in life, you know? It's just one split second of how you looked in that particular lighting and shadow and, you know, that day and that moment. And so kind of giving people that framework too, I think is helpful kind of saying like, yes, you have to sort of be able to accept the real body that you have and that's incredibly vulnerable. And also like this photo isn't the essence of who you are. This photo isn't the be all end all. Photos are just photos. When we look at photos of ourselves, inevitably our eyes are drawn to whatever we're most sensitive about. I took some photos last year of someone who's very dear to me and she All she could see in the photos was she has a little bit of loose skin on her throat, not a double chin, a little bit lower down. And she has a scar from a surgery. And all she could see was that scar and that little bit of loose skin. Whereas what I saw was the love in her eyes when she looked at me and how much fun she was having. Uh, We were out in the Olympic mountains and we were having this wonderful road trip, you know, and, and so I'm seeing the pink of the sweater she had on and the the love that's in her eyes as she's looking at the camera because somebody she loves was taking the photo. And that's what I see. I have a photo of myself that someone else took. And in it, I am wearing a dress that I really love. And I have my arms thrown into the air and my head is back laughing. It's just a joyful moment. And when I got that photo back, the first thing I saw was my upper arms which are, they're bare and they're thrown out and you can see those bingo wings. And, <laughs> and that was the first thing I saw. And, you know, at the time that I saw that photo pretty recently, I had been photographing other people and telling people how beautiful their bodies are for years. And yet when I saw that photo of myself, my eyes went straight to my arms and I had kind of had to deal with that in that moment of, oh, oh, look, this is happening to me. And, it, but that's my favorite photo out of the whole session. Now that now that I've gone, okay, that's how my arms look. Like those are my arms. They're they're always going to look that way because they're mine. And now I can look at the joy in that photo, and it's a great photo. 
Right. Yeah. No, I definitely identify with that. I feel like anytime I see photos of myself, there's a little of that inner dialogue that comes up that, you know, I'm always telling other people too to be able to talk through. And it's like, this is a practice. I think in in our society, there's no way for it not to be a practice that as our bodies change as we get older or as we just have to come to accept certain things about our bodies and they're evident in photos or whatever, like having that inner dialogue and sort of talking yourself through it, I think is really important. What I've learned uh, and been exposed to in, in my own work in photography is that when I started out, I intended to mostly work with plus size women. Like that was my market. But the people who are coming to me now include a lot of plus size women and, and people who live in larger bodies. But it also includes folks who are transgender, who are in transition, who are learning to receive themselves, learning to receive their bodies. It's a lot of transgender women who are able to access, again, that mainstream beauty standard for women for the first time. You know, and it's all kinds of folks, it's LGBT folks who don't necessarily feel safe with photographers who are very invested in that mainstream aspirational stuff. And it's, as a photographer, you do have to prove yourself. You do have to represent lots of different bodies in your work and in your public work too, not just in your hidden portfolio, but in your public work. Because if you are aspirational, yeah, you're going to attract people who, who are into that. But if you want to be a safe person to work with for people who have bodies that are way outside the mainstream or orientations or whatever, you have to prove that. You have to prove that you are safe to work with. Well, I want to talk a little more about your work with Representation Matters because I know that's, you know, it sounds like that's sort of an offshoot maybe of the work that you were already doing with, you know, people in, in all kinds of different bodies. And I'm curious how that came to be? Well, when I had been, um, I had been photographing people for about a year when there's a website called Refinery29 and Getty Images, which is of course one of the largest stock photo companies in the world. um, Those two entities did a collaboration and they released what they called the 67% collection. And it was meant to represent um, in stock images, the 67% of American women who are plus size. And that came across my radar because a lot of people I knew were getting really excited about it, um, not only for the representation aspect, but also for a lot of small business owners got really excited about being able to represent plus size women in their marketing. And what happened was a lot of people got really, really excited about it. And they rushed over to the Getty website to buy these photos. And they discovered two things. One was that for some reason, I cannot fathom, Getty had made the images editorial use only in the licensing. And that's a particular kind of stock image license that means you cannot use the images for marketing or advertising. That's ridiculous. I'm sure they had a good reason for it, but I don't understand it. But then the other thing is that because of the way Getty's pricing works, uh, these were not priced within the reach of small business owners. They just weren't. I came across that myself because actually I I talked with Kelsey Miller about it, um, about the 67% project back when it launched and, you know, really a fan. I have written for Refinery29 a bunch. I'm a huge fan of their work. But, you know, when I went to look into this, I was also like, okay, I had a budget that I thought I could get like, you know, 10 photos with or something and it doesn't even cover one. (laughs) So maybe not. (laughs) Right. Right. And so, so I kind of saw this 
backlash as people got really excited and then came away from the Getty site going, oh, never mind. And I had been doing quite a bit of portfolio work to work on my own skills as a photographer. And so I had quite a few images sitting around that when I had done the shoots, I had licensed them. And I mean, I had done a model release in a way where I could do stock photos out of those. And so I thought, oh, okay, I'll release a little stock photo collection that's just plus size women and see how that does as a second income stream. And immediately people started reaching out to me immediately. And they weren't just saying, oh, I like this. They were saying, give me more, give me different stuff. We want plus size women of color. We want people who use wheelchairs. We want people with disabilities. We want LGBTQIAP plus representation. We want representation of everybody that's not white, thin, and able-bodied. And of course, there are kind of sort of those things on the big sites like Getty, but they're hard to find. And they still tend to be people who look like models. They tend to be, again, they're Photoshopped. Everything is Photoshopped. And so even when you were getting like this rare plus size woman of color in a stock photo, all her fat rolls were Photoshopped off, <laughs> you know? And so it was still very fake. And so I said, okay, I can do that. And I started doing more stock photo shoots. And the response has just been incredible. Because people, I get, I get emails from people that are in all caps with a thousand exclamation marks because not only, you know, representing all these different bodies, but doing it where they're not Photoshopped and they're not staged and it's not models. Um, I mostly don't work with anybody who has any model training or experience because I want people who are everyday people and who don't know how to model and who don't know how to pose because they're giving me the most authentic versions of themselves. Right. I think that's so powerful. And I love your photos for that reason. I feel like they're, they just got a life to them that other stock photos don't, you know, and I think stock photos are so like, they can be so cheesy and terrible. And you know, for (laughs) a million reasons, but it's like, I think finding ones where you have people in larger bodies or people of all diverse identities, just kind of doing everyday stuff is a really cool aspect of this too. Because I think, you know, I've seen stock photos on the traditional websites where it's like someone plus size person measuring their waist with a tape measure, stepping on the scale or eating a salad and looking sad or like (laughs) holding a cheeseburger in one hand and a salad in another and looking confused, you know, and it's just like, ah, what are we doing? So, you know, the fact that you have photos of like, I use one of yours, that's um, a beautiful shot of a plus size woman doing yoga, like against a sunset kind of, or like the sun is filtering through the trees in a really nice way. And it's just like, I don't know, it just evokes like such freedom to me and such, you know, rootedness. And it's like, she's doing something that has nothing to do with feeling bad about her body, you know, that's really embracing and caring for her body. And there's like, tons of other images on there too of people just like living their lives and some cool ones of like you know a plus size woman of color like throwing away a head of cauliflower (laughs) which I love (laughs) yes yeah a lot of a lot of my work has been about deliberately taking a stock image trope and rejecting it so yes one of the first shoots that I did was um a rejection of the thin white woman laughing alone with salad (laughs) And and so yes, we I got ahead of it's actually a head of lettuce. We sat there um and uh, with this plus size woman of color I know, and I just I had her throw that lettuce over her shoulder and <laughs> disgusted about fifteen times. Uh. <laughs> 
so that we could capture it in motion. And it was so much fun. And um, the woman doing yoga in the sunset, um, I just have to give a shout out. That is Danielle Becks. Her um, she, her Instagram is danielle.bex, and B-E-X. And she does a daily twirl where she puts on whatever clothing is making her feel amazing that day and twirls and captures it. And it's, it's amazing. Oh, that's awesome. I love her too. Cause you've, you've used her in a few like series and we had, um, for my Instagram, we did another one of like her against a wall kind of looking to the side and she has this beautiful skirt on and it's just like really gorgeous photo. That was the same day. Actually, we did, we did this marathon marathon shoot, but yeah. So a lot of the work is, is about rejecting those tropes and saying, what can we replace it with? That is, body respectful and body honors the bodies that people have or that deliberately replaces some really popular stock images that have toxic elements. Everybody has seen the stock image of a generic office with three white men, a black man, and an Asian woman. (laughs) Everybody has seen it. You know the one I'm talking about. Oh, yes. And, um, And so it's about, well, what if we got five fat women in a a networking kind of environment like that. So I did one of those last fall where it was a shoot like that. And eventually we'll get a a larger group together with mixed, you know, all kinds of mixed sizing and mixed, you know, skin colors and so on. The more people you have involved in a stock photo shoot, the more coordination it takes. So those are a little bit slower to come than than one that involves one or two people. Um, But it's been one of the really neat things about doing the stock photos. I wanted to come back to that marginalized community aspect. And what I'm finding is that with Sweet Amaranth, uh, Sweet Amaranth is my portrait and boudoir studio that I have here outside Seattle. A lot of the folks who want to work with me simply can't afford to pay me a living wage for what I do. Because a lot of the folks that are best suited to working with me are in marginalized communities, which of course statistically tend to be poorer. So one of the most amazing things about Representation Matters is that It allows me to take those folks who wouldn't be able to afford to work with me individually as a portrait photographer and to work with them and to give them that experience, but also not only to use the photos from those sessions as stock photos and to use them for a larger purpose, which allows me to give people those experiences for for free. So it makes a difference for them, but it also allows them to represent people like them in the wider world. So not only are they getting the experience of working with a professional photographer, but they're getting to do it in a way that allows them to say on a worldwide stage anonymously, like I don't, I don't name my models, but um, like I'm not going to tag them unless they ask to be tagged. Um, because being a stock photo model is, it can be a little bit fraught because you don't know where those photos are going to end up. But uh, like you could be on a billboard or the side of a bus, but at the same time, it allows them to say my body is not only valid and unique and amazing, but it is so valid and amazing that I am totally okay with representing people like me who are fat people of color or a lesbian couple or whatever on a world stage and saying, yes, not only is it okay, but it's representative of people like me. Yeah, that's amazing. What a beautiful experience to be able to give people. I love it. Well, I'm so such a fan of your work and I want people to be able to find you and connect with the great stuff you're doing because I think, you know, bloggers, Instagrammers, like anyone who wants to a small business owners like with sales pages or whatever, anyone who wants to diversify their representation of bodies in their photos, I think could really benefit from your site. And of course, too, like where, you know, let us know where people can find you for your one on one photography as well. Um, But tell us, 
you know, all the websites and places you are online so people can find you. <laughs> all right. For Representation Matters, it is at representationmatters.me, not .com, because the URL, the URL was taken. Um, so we're, we're at representationmatters.me, and that is not only a fantastic resource for people who are looking for stock images, but I'm also accepting contributors of people who do diverse and body positive artwork and photography. Uh, so it's not just me now. We're a team. And I have three contributors as of the taping of this. Um, and it's growing really rapidly. New people are coming in all the time. And if you look on the representationmatters.me website, there is a section called contribute. And anyone who's interested in contributing can read all the requirements there and apply. That's so exciting. I love that. Yeah, because what I discovered is that uh, not only am I just one person and I can't do it all myself, but I also, I also, being one human being, I have limited viewpoints and limited skills and talents that aren't enough to represent everything in the world. And there are so many wonderful um, fat artists, people of color who are photographers and, and so on and so on that deserve a platform too. So representation matters is really about giving people that platform rather than just about it being about me. I love that. If you want to work with me individually, I do have a portrait studio here outside Seattle, Washington. And that website is sweetamaranth.com. And that's S-W-E-E-T-A-M-A-R-A-N-T-H.com. Or if you Google my name, it will come up. I love it. That is so great. And we'll be sure to link to all that in the show notes, too, so people can find you easily. Thank you so much, Lindley. This was amazing. I could talk to you forever. And I'm just so glad you came on the show. Thanks, Christy. It's such an honor to be here. So that's our show. Thanks again so much to Lindley Ashline for being here with us today. And thanks to you for listening. This episode was brought to you by my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. If you're ready to make peace with food, become an intuitive eater, and leave diet culture behind once and for all, learn more and sign up for the course at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. To get full show notes from this episode, including all the resources we discussed and Lindley's amazing website, plus a full transcript, head over to christyharrison.com slash 152. That's christyharrison.com slash 152. And to get the transcript, just scroll down to the bottom of the page and enter your email address. If you've gotten something out of this podcast, please help us spread the word and share the anti-diet message by sharing this episode on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. And also be sure you're subscribed and tell your friends and family to subscribe too. You can go to christyharrison.com slash subscribe to see the most common places where you can find us. A big thanks to our editors and engineers at Podcast Fast Track and my awesome team at Food Psych Programs, including our community manager and content development associate, Ashley Saruya, our administrative assistant, Sarah Thompson, and our transcript assistant, Megan Saichi, for helping me out with all the moving parts that go into producing this show for you every week. Our album art was photographed by Abby Moore Photography and designed by Meredith Noble. And the music you're hearing behind me now is by a band called AWOL. The track is called Food, used under the Creative Commons license. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, stay psyched. Stupid or scared.